the finish line it does not mean we've completely eradicated the enemy what it does mean we know the end is certain and we know how the story ends and so we can go ahead and celebrate because we know how this thing wraps up we are more than conquerors right greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world victory is assured and so I might as well thank God for it So good to see each of you in the house of the Lord. I don't know how many frostbite victims we got out there this morning. Amen. I don't know how many suffered from getting the parking lot to the front door, but it was mighty, mighty cold. Thank you for being here today. I feel the fire of the Holy Ghost warming our hearts, and I am thankful for His presence and spirit that is here. Amen. I want to take just a moment before I begin ministering today. Last week, I challenged the church that before the end of the year was out, we wanted to teach 50 home Bible studies. How many remember that? 50 personal home Bible studies, coffee shop Bible studies, wherever they may be held. But 50 uh, Bible studies held on an individual level. I am so happy to report to you that just from last week, to this week we have eight personal bible studies that have started in one week come on i think god deserves some praise for that that's fantastic amen amen i'm so thankful for that amen i give god the praise for that Amen. Brother and Sister Simpson have started uh, several Bible studies. Brother David Pena has started several Bible studies. Amen. Thank you. Amen. For your dedication. Amen. To spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest thing that you could ever do. And I thank you for that. And I know heaven rejoices with you in that as well. I want to also take just a moment to recognize you may be seated just for a moment. I'd like for our youth team to remain standing. Um, and brother and sister uh, Axtell, if you would as well. We recently went on our Move the Mission campaign. This is a dedicated time in which we sacrificially give. It is led by our youth department and um, also brother and sister Axtell, which happens to be our Section 4 youth leaders. And all of our young people uh, worked very, very hard to give to our Move the Mission campaign, giving campaign. And what Move the Mission does it helps establish and start churches, amen, not only here but overseas. It helps uh, give vehicles to missionaries to allow them to travel around and spread the gospel. Amen. so this is something that goes to the benefit of uh, propagating the gospel across the world. Uh, Tupelo Children's Mansion receives funds for this. There's a number of areas that um, are recipients 
of your giving. And so for this particular year, we broke an all-time record for our church in this particular department in Move the Mission, led by our youth department, all of our young people, and your faithful giving. And so you were able to give a $5,000-plus offering from Move the Mission. We received this from headquarters. It will be in our Missions Cafe. Give yourself a hand. Thank you so much for your sacrificial giving. Moving the mission of the gospel until he returns. Thank you so much for that record-breaking offering for our church. And I am so thankful for that. Next Sunday morning, as has already been mentioned, I will start a series entitled Real Change. Someone say Real Change. The reason we call it Real Change is because... 80% of the people who start New Year's resolutions and initiatives by the third week of January, they're already gone. And so that's not change. That's not real change. That's temporary change. So I deliberately waited till everyone had already broken their New Year's resolutions, and then we'll start talking about how to actually have real change. And we'll start that next week. I'm excited about that. It's going to be wonderful. Next Sunday night, the Pattersons, a wonderful young couple from Romania, will be here missionaries to Romania. They'll be ministering the gospel. They are a wonderful young couple. They were with us several years ago. They now have two baby girls, beautiful baby girls, and they're a wonderful couple. You do not want to miss next Sunday night, the Pattersons from Romania. Everyone say amen. Esther chapter 4, I will conclude today our multi-week series and what has also become the theme for our church in 2024 for such a time as this we will conclude today that series I feel like God has started something wonderful in our church I felt the momentum of God's presence even week one and that has carried on through the last several weeks for if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Verse 15, Then Esther bade them to return Mordecai this answer. That's Mordecai, brother and sister Vasquez, Mordecai. They were teasing me. I was adding apparently an extra Mordecai. I don't know. It's, it must be my harnet honey coming out. But then Esther bade them to return to Mordecai this answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And here's what I want us to pay particular attention to so will I go in unto the king which is not according to the law and if I perish I perish and if I perish I perish today I want to minister on this topic God's perfect timing God's perfect timing one of the most difficult things that we can learn to do as Christians is trust in the timing of God. Most people will not argue about the power of God. They'll not argue with you about the ability of God. Only a fool will argue the ability and power of God. 
But we all at times have a problem with God's timing. We all at times question the timing of God. I've come to proclaim to you God's timing is perfect. God's perfect timing. Put your Bibles down. If you would, lift your hands and ask the Lord to have His way over the next few minutes. God, we thank You. Not only for Your power and Your ability, God. Not only for who You are, but we thank You for Your perfect timing in our lives. Help us through Your Word today to trust and believe in the timing, God, that is perfect in every way and established by You. In the mighty name of Jesus. Turn to your neighbor before you're seated and tell them God's timing is perfect. Tell them again. They didn't hear you. You may be seated. Well, I ought to preach better. I just baptized myself with a bottle of water, so that's wonderful. (laughs) I must have needed it. Today we bring to a conclusion the dramatic account of Esther, the account by which we over the last several weeks have been looking into. And the reason we have spent several weeks focusing on this is because we truly believe that what God was revealing then in the book of Esther is what He is revealing now. Our theme for the year is for such a time as this that is taken, of course, from the book of Esther. And as we have walked through this incredible book, the parallels between that time and this time have been remarkable. The book of Esther ends with a dramatic plot twist that's worthy of any movie or book. And yet, We know that it's not a fictitious story or the imagination of some Hollywood producer. This, brothers and sisters, is a true account. A true account divinely ordered by God in His Word for all generations to see. Over the last several weeks, we have seen the rise of this young Jewish girl by the name of Esther, who despite being an orphan, and ultimately raised by her uncle Mordecai, God seemed fit and seen it possible to elevate this young girl to the loftiest possible position in the kingdom. Esther was queen over all the land. Her uncle Mordecai continues to work at the king's gate. And as we learn, because he refused to bow down while working at the king's gate and showing obeisance to one of the king's top employees, a man by the name of Haman, because he would not bow down, because if you remember, he wanted to live biblically and not culturally, he refused to bow down to another man because he knew he was to worship the one true God. Because of that, now all of the Jews have a written decree of death hanging over their head that all of them should be killed. Haman's hatred of Mordecai and all the Jews is what drove him to get this decree written by the king. He would not uh, be disrespected. He didn't like the fact that Mordecai and those that were with him and those believed like him would not worship him. And so he went to the king, convinced him that everybody in the land was in revolt, 
And so anyone that was in revolt would be killed. And so we were facing here a complete wipeout, a complete genocide of all the Jews. And so Esther and Mordecai and all of their people now literally faced a death sentence. It's here at this juncture that Mordecai expresses to Esther. He said, you must go to the king. You've got to try to do something about what's going on. This decree that has gone out, you've got to try to fix it. You've got to try to reverse it. You've got to try to change it and see if you can somehow change the king's mind. However, as we discovered last week, it wasn't like a normal situation. You just didn't approach the king whenever you wanted to. You didn't just knock on the door and say, hey, you got a few minutes, king. It didn't work like that. In fact, even if you were the queen and you tried to go talk to the king and you had not been invited, you could face death. So you can hear the desperation in Mordecai's voice as he's saying to Esther, you have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. And yet, it is the response of Esther that arrests my attention today. When she responded back to Mordecai, when he said, you got to go talk to the king, you got to do something about this, she, knowing she could potentially die going before the king uninvited, said this, if I perish, I perish. The urgency of the hour called and re, re, it responded in a way and caused her to respond in a way of anything else other than total commitment. Total commitment. This wasn't a matter of Esther testing the waters. It wasn't a matter of knowing that she could go in there and maybe ease out and change her mind later. Once she entered into the king's court, there was no going back. There could be no hesitancy. There could be no second thought. She must have total commitment. And yet, she was willing to sacrifice her life for the salvation of her people. She no longer had the luxury, perhaps, of sleeping on this decision for a couple of more nights. She didn't have the luxury of several more weeks of mulling it over and thinking about it. The essence of the hour was critical, and it required total and complete commitment from her at that moment. Brothers and sisters, I tell you today, just as it required total and complete commitment by Esther and urgency of that commitment in that hour, the hour you and I live in right now calls for that same selfless commitment to Jesus Christ, to His kingdom, and to the work that He has given us to do on this earth. We no longer have the luxury of getting spiritual cold feet. We no longer have the luxury of saying to oneself, I'm still considering, I'm still thinking about it, I'm still mulling it over, I'm going to wait a bit longer. I want to tell you that day is long gone. We don't have that luxury anymore. We don't have that extra time. We don't have that buffer any longer. Mordecai said to Esther, I know you may have thought about it before, but I'm telling you, you are here for such a time as this, and we don't have any extra time for you to think about it and mull it over. You must go now. So the hour that you and I are called into right now requires that kind of urgency. 
that kind of commitment. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That is where we are at in 2024. We no longer have the option of sitting on the sidelines, waiting it out, waiting for a better opportunity, waiting for it to get more critical, waiting for the time to get more urgent, waiting for God to get closer to returning. We are in the last day. We are in the final hour. It requires urgency. It requires commitment. It requires you selling out to God. A living sacrifice. Someone say living sacrifice. Now we've lost touch what sacrifice actually meant to those in the Old Testament. In biblical days, whenever it was time in the Old Testament to offer God a sacrifice, the individual would often go pick a lamb that his family, no doubt, had grown attached to. Now, I've got two sheep at home. And I'm embarrassed to admit to you I'm a little attached to them. Their names are Chanel and Prada. That's all you need to know right there. And uh, they, follow me, they follow me around like dogs in the yard. Uh, they holler at me when I get out of my truck in the afternoons. They want to be fed for the sixth time that day. They're so fat, they literally practically drag the ground walking around. They got it made. Now, Brother Shaw, I can't imagine going out there with my family looking at me through the window. And having to grab one of those precious sheep that I've grown attached to, we've given a name to, we've taken pictures with. I know it's sad. And as my kids are wailing from the back porch, Brother Ogden, I gotta take that sheep, lay it on an altar, and plunge a knife through its heart. That's sacrifice. That's sacrifice for obedience to God. Not only was there emotional attachment for each of these animals, it, re it represented a significant monetary value as well. And for anyone who did not believe in the one true God, this must seem like insanity to literally burn money at an altar. And the Bible says that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. So when I tell you today we have reached the hour of urgency and we have reached the moment for total commitment. What I mean is uh, this verse in Romans has never been more true. We have got to get to a point uh, where we sacrifice something uh, that we may have gotten attached to, uh, something that we like, uh, something that we've grown accustomed to, uh, but out of obedience to God, uh, out of total commitment, uh, we say, hey, uh, I like to do that. Uh, that's something I enjoy doing, uh, but I'm going to be uh, a living uh, sacrifice uh, to God I'm going to obey him and respond with urgency and total commitment in this hour not everybody's going to understand that sacrifice true sacrificing to God 
should not be like the white elephant Christmas party where you give gifts away you didn't want anyway and you get stuck with something you're just going to bring back to the party next year. That's not sacrifice. True sacrifice. It's hard to give it. It's hard to relinquish it. It's hard to release it. But you understand out of obedience to God, out of the urgency of the hour, out of a desire and a commitment to be everything God wants me to be and to see the gospel reached across this planet, I will become a living sacrifice to Jesus. True sacrifice is taking something in your life that you've grown attached to. Something you spend a considerable amount of time doing. Something you like to do. Something you enjoy doing. But out of obedience to God and the urgency of the hour, you say to yourself, I'm going to commit to God and make a sacrifice to Him. That's the hour we live in. You may say to yourself, Sunday's my only day off. Come on, somebody. But you pick that lamb up, put it on the altar, remind yourself, the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourself together. I know it's a sacrifice. If you had seven days off and Sunday was just for something where you could go and do, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. But you work hard. You put in tough hours by the sweat of your brow. You put food on the table. And it would be easy to sleep in on Sunday. But the, the fact of the matter is, the Bible says we present our bodies a living sacrifice. So what we do, we hit the alarm clock. We roll out of bed. We put our Sunday best on. And we come and we magnify Jesus. That's our lamb. Your lamb may be your leisure time, your free time. You say, well, that's what I like to do. Uh-huh. Philippians 2 and 17, the CEV version says, Your faith in the Lord and your service are like a sacrifice offered to Him. Mm. And by my own blood have poured out with the sacrifice, I will be glad and rejoice in this. My service to Him. What I do for Him, what I do for His kingdom, what I do for His people, it's my sacrifice. I know it requires time. I know it requires energy. I know it requires me pushing off things I like to do. But for such a time as this, it requires total commitment, total urgency, a complete selling out of my desire, saying, God, I want to please you first and everybody else second. What you want is at the top of the priority list for me, and everything else falls beneath that. Your lamb may be leisure time. You may say, well, pastor, I'm not a very demonstrative individual. I'm not very expressive. I'm private. I'm subdued. That's your lamb in the backyard. You've grown attached to being able to come into church and watch others express their love to God through worship freely without inhibition. Maybe your lamb is your pride. Maybe your lamb is your guilt. Whatever sacred cow it is that keeps you from fully surrendering in worship to God. I want to challenge you today. Hebrews 13 and 15 says, By Him, 
Therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. You know what happens when you come into church and you're tired and you don't feel like it, but they begin to sing and you get that old creaking back straightened out and you lift those old tired arms up and you begin to praise and glorify God. You are giving a sacrifice of praise unto God. You understand and know, hey, the world world is praising their gods. The devil's getting enough credit. He's getting enough worship outside there. When I step in here, I'm going to offer a sacrifice of praise unto God. This past week, I read that nearly 70 individuals had to go to the hospital because they had hypothermia and frostbite from sitting out watching a stupid football game. Can I tell you today, it ought to be a sacrifice when we praise God. We may have to get uncomfortable. We may have to do something we wouldn't normally do. We may have to be more demonstrative than we would normally be. We may have to get outside of that subdued, shy, backward personality and say, I don't care what people say about me. I don't care what they think about me. It may be outside of my personality, but I am offering a sacrifice of praise unto God. If you walk in here and all you give him is a patty cake for Jesus and you can barely show him any praise, it would have been like them walking out there and finding that old lamb that's nearly dead, that's got three legs and it's on its last leg and barely living and saying, well, I guess this will do. This is all I've got. This is all I'll give. No, the Bible says they would go out there and find that lamb that was without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, the very best that they had and they would offer it up to God. A lot of people say, I don't know why you get all dressed up to go to church because we believe in giving God our best. It may not be the best, This suit's about $99, but it's my best. And he deserves my best. It's not a sacrifice if I'm not giving my best. It's not a sacrifice if I'm not giving it all I got. It's a reflection of the way I feel about him. When you see me, you ought to know that's important to him. That matters to him. That's something that's a priority for him. may be seated. Esther said, if I die, I die. She put on the royal apparel. She stood in the inner court. The king saw her, extended the golden scepter to her, which was basically an invitation. It was the invitation she needed. And as she stood in that royal court, she knew that her life was in danger. She knew with just a simple gesture the king could have her carried out for the lack of respect that she was shown. But she didn't care. And when we approach God, we should approach Him with the same attitude. I'm not here to please people. I'm not here to look cool. (laughs) 
I'm not here to impress anybody. <laughs> I'm here because I'm selling out to Jesus Christ. I'm going to be totally committed. And if my pride dies, let it die. If my reputation dies, let it die. Right? Because I'm here to please God. And so she stood there. And thankfully, by the divine providence of God, the king extended her an invitation. And so he asked her, what is it that you want? What is it that you would like for me to do for you? You're standing here in the court. You've risked your life to come in here. You came in here without invitation. What is it you would like? And this probably surprised him a little bit. And she said, you know, all I really want you to do, the Bible says, she said, I just want you to come to dinner. Just come to dinner. But there's one more person I want you to invite to that dinner. Bring that guy Haman with you. Esther said, I just want to cook a nice banquet meal for you. But I want Haman to come along too. That probably didn't mean a whole lot to the king, but it would shortly. They arrive at the dinner, the first dinner. And for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't tell us, we can only speculate, but for whatever reason, Esther decided that the time was not right. You know, if you're going to talk to a man, you've got to wait till the time is right. And so she said, you know what? It just doesn't feel like this is the right time to ask him about why he's killing all the Jews. And so they got to the dinner, and the king said, well, what is it you want? She was like, uh, how about I come to dinner tomorrow night? He's like, well, the food's good. I got nothing going on tomorrow night. All right, we'll come tomorrow night. She said, bring Haman with you. And so, that's what they did. They scheduled another dinner the following night. Well, Haman goes home, and he's bragging to his wife. The Bible says when he said, I am the only one invited to this dinner. But because he was so incensed over Mordecai refusing to bow down, he could not even enjoy this supposed honor. He's ranting and he's raving about the disrespect that was shown to him. And his wife said, finally says, why don't you go out there and have some gallows built and go tell the king that this guy Mordecai is causing all kinds of problems and he needs to be hung on those gallows. His wife said, then you can enjoy your dinner. It won't bother you so much. The situation looked bleak. As we view this particular passage of scripture and where we are at in the book of Esther let's be reminded we got gallows that are built for right now our main character the hero gallows are being built a decree has gone out for killing all of the Jews the evil Haman has power he literally has the king's ring on his hand and it seems that evil is being promoted and that righteousness is faltering once again, we see the correlation between that time and the time we live in right now. If you didn't know any better, in 2024, it can appear that evil is triumphing and that evil is winning. Why? Because churches are being minimized. Committed Christians are being labeled as extremists. Babies are being murdered. Fentanyl deaths are skyrocketing. Perversions being pushed into our schools. Children are being trafficked and victimized. Gender confusion has reached levels of insanity. 
Just this week, Amazon has put out a new cartoon television show rewriting the story of Genesis to make the devil the victim and God the villain. This week. This week. And at a glance, this can be distressing and a discouraging time to live. The temptation is there just to throw up your hands and say, what's the use? The temptation is there just to hunker down in your house, hold on to your old Bible, and just wait for the Lord to come back. But notice what transpires next. Why? Because God's timing is perfect. There ain't nothing going on here in the book of Esther. And there ain't nothing going on in 2024 that surprises or shocks or ambushes God. I know at times we get rattled. I know at times we get upset and we get concerned. But God's not concerned because His timing is perfect. It's perfect. And so, as it appears, gallows are being built. A decree has gone out to kill all of the Jews. Esther's got cold feet. But then we remember something. How many remember last week when we talked about Mordecai foiling the plot of two would-be assassins? Mordecai was sitting there at the king's gate, and he heard two guys chattering about wanting to kill the king. So he went and told Esther, said, you need to tell the king there's two guys trying to kill him. Esther 2 and 23 goes back and reminds us of that. And when the inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out therefore, and they were both hanged on a tree. And notice that it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Now fast forward to Esther chapter 6. Esther, I can get ready to read Esther chapter 6 and verse 1. So what Mordecai did when he called out these would-be assassins, and he saved the king's life. It was chronicled in a book. We fast forward all the way to the sixth chapter. And notice what the Bible says here. On that night could not the king sleep. Uh-huh. The king couldn't sleep. And he had he, insomnia. Read on. And he commanded to bring the book of records. Uh-oh. Somebody Bible. say the book. What book? The book of records. The, the book. same book that had previously chronicled the good deed of Mordecai. Read on. And they were read before the king. Now, you know you're a king when you can't sleep and you got people hired just to read to you till you go to sleep. That's good. And so he said, I want you to bring that book and let me just read this book of Chronicles. And it was found written that mm -hmm. Mordecai had told of big... Thana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king, Ahasuerus. And so, thank you. And so he said, these are the two guys I'm reading about them that tried to kill me, and Mordecai saved my life. Verse 3 says, The king said, uh -huh. What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? So this guy, Mordecai, that saved my life, I'm up here, I can't sleep, I'm reading this book of Chronicles, I'm just curious, what did we do for the guy that saved my life? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, there is nothing done for him. Thank you. That's all. And so he said, well, as a matter of fact, we've done nothing for that guy. He saved your life. 
He foiled the assassination plot, but as a matter of fact, we've done nothing for him. Now think about this. The whole time Mordecai must have been thinking, I saved the king's life. I did the right thing, even though it may have cost me friends. I've been doing right. I've been living right. And it's almost as if nobody has even noticed. The king has forgotten me. My good has gone unnoticed. Nobody has seen the good I've done. But you know what? God saw it. And he saw fit that it was recorded and chronicled in the king's book. And so he gave the king insomnia one night and said, you ain't going to be able to sleep, old boy. And you're going to ask for the book of Chronicles. And when you're brought that book, you're going to read about a man that you never honored by the name of Mordecai. God saw it. And in his infinite wisdom was waiting on the perfect time to bring it to the king's remembrance. The perfect time. Verse 4, notice this. Then the king asked, who's in the court? He's up. He's awake. He's reading this Chronicles. He's recognized what's going on. Well, guess who was in court at that very moment waiting to talk to the king about hanging Mordecai? Haman. (laughs) Now, think about this. He's just been reminded that Mordecai saved his life and he never honored him. At that exact same moment, there's this knucklehead Haman out here and he can't wait to run in And say, hey, by the way, I built some gallows out there to hang this guy Mordecai. The king must have thought, you got to be kidding me. Esther 6 and 5 through 10, the king's attendants said unto him, Haman is waiting in the court. So the king said, let him enter. Notice this, and Haman entered, and the king said unto him, what should be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? (laughs) So the king just asked him, hey, what would you do, Haman, if there was a guy that the king wanted to honor? Notice what Haman thought in his heart, who more than me would the king desire to honor? He thought the king was talking about him. He's like, oh, you're wanting to honor somebody. So Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal apparel be brought. And the king himself was worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden with a royal insignia on his head. Because he's thinking about himself. He's thinking, hey, this is what the king's going to do for me. Let the apparel and the horse for this man be handled by one of the king's noble officials. I mean, he's doing it upright. He's going to pat himself on the back in a grand way and dress the man whom the king delights to honor as well as lead him on horseback throughout the city. Finally, let him proclaim before him. Like this it shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman's like, boy, it's about to be a good day. One small problem. The king wasn't talking about him. In fact, He was talking about the man Haman hated. Then said the king to Haman, Quickly, take the apparel and the horse as you have said, and do so for Mordecai, the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Of everything you have spoken, do not fall short of any of it. (laughs) 
I love how God's perfect timing will reverse circumstances and situations in your life when the devil is plotting and scheming and devising ways to take you down. If you are faithful and you've committed your life to God, you can trust in the timing of God. I promise you, God knows what he's doing. He's in control and his timing is perfect. So the king said, go ahead and do it to Mordecai. Well, rather than going in thinking he was going to end Mordecai, going in to get the green light to hang him, Haman walks out with the commandment from the king to honor him. He literally had to follow Mordecai, who was riding on the king's horse, arrayed with all manner of royal garments uh, down the main street of the city, which have undoubtedly must have been incredibly humiliating to Haman and a complete reversal of his evil plan. It reminds me of what Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. I'm not going to sit out there and get all frustrated and upset and discouraged and depressed because it seems like the devil's winning. It seems like things are not going my way. It seems like things are not turning out like I hoped because I know a God whose timing is perfect. I see it in scripture. I see it in my own life. I'm going to trust in God and know I may not understand it. I may not get it. I may not fully comprehend it, but what I know is God. God's timing is perfect and I'm believing there's going to come a day when I'm going to ride down the streets of this town. I'm going to ride down the streets of those around me and I will make a mockery of the devil. Those that said it couldn't happen, they'll be there to witness. Those that said I couldn't get my healing, they'll be there to see it. Those that said I couldn't change, they'll be there to see it. Those that said the miracle was impossible, they will be a front row to what God has done. Oh, I'd like to have been a fly on the wall watching Haman trudging behind that horse. He's got cleanup duty. He's got to walk behind that horse uh, like a regular servant. Uh, and there's Mordecai who God has elevated, uh, who God has protected, uh, who God has put in its right place, uh, and he's being honored. I know it may be tough right now, but don't give up on the plan of God. I know it may look bleak right now. I may not. I know it's probably not what you wanted. It's not how you wanted it to turn out. Though the spiritual weather report is just dark clouds and rain. Can I tell you, God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginner and the finisher. He can finish what He has started. Not only that, I want to reassure you today. God keeps good records. He keeps good records. When Mordecai saved the king's life and nobody seemed to notice, God made sure it was written in the king's book. And he kept the king up all night to read about it and then honor him. Can I remind you that he has heard every prayer that has ever been prayed by his people. Your tears have not been shed in vain. Your sacrifice has not been for naught. 
your sacrifice, your toil, although it may have been done in the shadows, in the shadows it will not remain. Mordecai will be brought into the light. It will be seen, it will be recognized, and it will be rewarded by everyone in this town. You're not serving a God who sits over a messy desk somewhere up in heaven with papers and recorded deeds laying all over his office in an unorganized, disheveled mess, but rather you serve a God that the Bible says He takes every prayer you have ever prayed and He captures them in a vial. Every single prayer you have ever prayed, He keeps it in a vial. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and a golden bow full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Mordecai, I know you may have thought no one saw it, no one recognized it, but the same God you took a stand for and refused to bow down to anyone else, the same God that you decided to live biblically for and not culturally, that same God has seen it, He has recognized it, and now He's going to reward it. He has seen every prayer that you have ever prayed. What prayers in particular are being referenced here in Revelations? It's a reference to not only our prayers, which we know are accounted for. How do we know that? Because the angel told Cornelius that his prayers and his alms have come up before a memorial before God. Every prayer that he had prayed had been accounted for. And every prayer was stacked and built on the previous prayer. And now that memorial had come up before God. One translation says it like this, a memorial that could not be avoided. God couldn't look around it anymore. You have prayed so much. You've been so faithful. You've been doing the right thing. This memorial. So we know that every prayer is accounted for. But in particular, what prayer, what prayers are being referenced here? It's referencing the prayers of the martyred saints. Such as this prayer found in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? Revelation 6 and 10. How long, O Lord? Holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? It seemed as if evil would win. It appeared as if the evil devices of the adversary would triumph and it looked even to the martyred saints like their sacrifice may have been in vain and their prayer was of no merit. They were asking how long. It was a question of timing. Not if God can. Not if God will. But God win. And that becomes the central challenge for everyone trying to serve God. You wouldn't be here if you didn't believe that God could. You wouldn't believe here if you didn't believe that God can and will. But the real question is, is the same question the martyred saints here said, how long, God? When will you do it? Has it gone unnoticed? But I want to tell you today, the timing of God is perfect. Your time of waiting is not in vain. Your season of sacrifice is and will not be wasted. 
Your season of patience will be rewarded. Those that have schemed against you, the adversary who has warred against your soul, the devices of evil men that have attempted to bring an end to the plan of God in your life, all will be before God in the perfect timing of God. And we see this in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3 when the Bible says, And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden, ins- a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of saints upon the golden altar. The answer to how long is found in this verse of Scripture and the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God and out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire of the altar, and cast it on the earth. And there was voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. The martyred saint says, God, how long? The Revelation chapter 8 tells us the moment God takes that and the angel takes it and he pours it out on the earth. All of the prayers, all of the tears, all of the sorrow, all of the death, all of the grief. He had cataloged it. He had kept it. He knew exactly every prayer that had gone into that bottle and he said, at this perfect time, at this perfect moment, I'm going to cast it upon the enemies. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something right now. God's timing is perfect. My timing is not perfect. Your timing is not perfect. But there is a God that has never made a mistake. And if you're praying something, and the same God who captured the prayers of martyr saints in a vow is the same God who chronicles and captures every prayer you have ever prayed, every long night, every season of sacrifice, ever seemingly unnoticed deed. God has seen it. And in his perfect timing, you will see the reward of that. He has seen it. Come on, I just feel the Holy Ghost. Close your eyes right now. God, I pray right now for that individual who has entertained the thought and the idea that you've not seen it, has felt alone, God. Feels like they're walking this road by themselves. God, they have wondered even this week if you even know where they are at. I pray the Holy Ghost reassures them right now through your word that your timing is perfect. Everything is under your eyes. There is nothing that has gone unnoticed or unseen. Every prayer, every toil, every sacrifice, every moment of distress, yet they remain faithful. You have seen it, God, and there is coming a day when you will reward it and they will see it believe God's timing is perfect, put your hands together and give him some praise. You're perfect, God. You're perfect, God. And so, Mordecai's been paraded down the street. He's been honored. Well, after Haman is finished parading Mordecai down the street, which had to be a lot of fun for him, he goes home and tells his wife the bad news. The Bible says he went into his house mourning with his head covered. Not the same guy who stood before the king with his chest all poked out, couldn't wait to get promoted. 
Now he goes home, head hung down, and mourning. And while he was yet talking to his wife, he hadn't even finished the conversation, and they come in to get him and say, Hey, they're waiting for you at the dinner. Esther and the king is waiting for you to show up at the dinner. Haman was like, this has got to be the worst day ever. And this brings us to maybe the most awkward dinner of all time. How many have ever had an awkward dinner? Conversation just dried up. Somebody said something they weren't supposed to say, and the rest of the time everybody just stared at their salad. Well, this was probably the most awkward dinner of all time. The king is sitting there. Haman, who has been plotting and devising evil to destroy all of God's people, even built gallows for Mordecai, who he just had to parade down the street. He's sitting there. And the king turns to the queen and says, Why did you call for this dinner? What do you need me to do? Esther proceeds to say, Well, now that you have asked, were you aware that me and all my people are about to be killed? Imagine Haman's face now. I can imagine the king jumping up to his feet, enraged. In verse 5, chapter 7, the king says, Who is planning on doing this? The camera pans back to Haman. <laughs> and he's like, Esther chapter 7, verse 6. Read this for me, Brother Ogden. Esther chapter 7, verse 6. Then King Hazarius answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? All right, verse 6. And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. There ain't before of us sitting here. <laughs> then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. I suspect he was. <laughs> now that's how you make a dinner awkward. Thank you. Is you accuse someone at the dinner of wanting to commit genocide against you and your people. And then what can only be described as the perfect script by God. The king, in anger, ran out into the palace garden. And while he was gone, Haman jumped up and ran over to where Esther was at. Now, in biblical times, they would eat dinner. It wasn't at like a table like we would. They'd kind of lounge back on couches, and they would eat. And so when the king ran out, because he's about to lose his mind, he's so mad, Haman jumps up and runs over to Esther. And he falls down on the couch where she's at, and he's literally begging for his life. And then, while he's laying on the couch, all up on Esther, might I add, guess who comes back in the door? The king. As if his fate wasn't already sealed, this pretty much did it. Notice what verse 8 says. All right. I got it. Then the, the king returned. Good. <laughs> then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was 
Then, oh, that's not a good look right there. Then said the king, will he force the queen also before me in this house? In my own house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. You know what covering Haman's face means? What would they do right before they would hang him? they cover his face. The Bible says they covered his face and he was hung. You want to guess that's good? You know where he was hung? On some brand new gallows. You know where these brand new gallows came from? The very hand of Haman. What I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, is God's timing is perfect. And what the devil thinks he's doing to you and what the devil thinks he's doing to the church through immorality, through iniquity, through perversion, through ungodliness, all he is doing is playing into the hands of a God whose timing is perfect. Let me show you how this works. You may be seated. This is how God's timing works. Cut those lights out, Brother Martinez. All of them. Now, right now, I can preach and preach and preach. 1984, I'd preach. Maybe they'd see it. Maybe they won't. Can we cut these out? Can we do that? That may be more difficult. Oh, there we go. But you know what? In 2024, there ain't a single person in this room that wouldn't argue this world's getting darker. I've just outlined the perversion and the ungodliness and the mess that's going on in schools and the mess that's being streamed into people's homes, all of the confusion and ungodliness. It's a dark, dark world. And you can either get upset about it, you can sit there and say we're losing the battle and evil is winning, or you can say, nope, this is exactly what God planned in his perfect plan and his perfect time. As the world gets darker, it is easier to see the world of God. I can now make it more visible. I can now see it better. I can see it when I'm looking for it, when I'm lost, when I don't know what to do, when I'm wondering what in the world is going on. I can now see the Word of God more clearly and more defined. Brothers and sisters, I've come to tell you none of this changes what God has planned from the very beginning. This latter-day revival is all asking me about the Bible right now that didn't care about it five years ago. I got family members asking me to pray because they see what's going on. They see what's happening in our world. They were ambivalent. They were apathetic just a few years ago. But when they see it with their own eyes, they know God is about to come back. I need to find the church. I need to get back into the Word of God. This is God's perfect timing. Don't wring your hands and wonder what's going to happen. I'll tell you what's going to happen. There's going to be an end time revival. There's going to be a great harvest. There's going to be a return of prodigals. God's going to take care of you. He's going to order your every step. You don't need to sit there despondent and depressed and discouraged, staying up all night, wondering what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. God in his perfect timing. He's going to lead you and others to Him. Stand with me. What the enemy has done to try to devise a plan of destruction, God can turn it around and reverse it and cause the enemy to fall on the very trap that was set for you. 
You want to have, you know what, what happens when the world tries to radicalize apostolics and people who really want to serve God? All they do is bring more attention to us. Right? When they try to marginalize those who actually believe, you should give God all you got. You know what they do? They just bring more attention. They just shine the light on it even more. The debauchery and perversion will become so great that even people who never thought they would darken the doors of a church will find themselves shoulder to shoulder with the saints of God. Even in your own personal life. I feel this in the Holy Ghost. Even in your own personal life. Don't think for a moment. God don't have a plan. (laughs) You may not see it. You may have given up on it. You may have thrown in the towel saying there's no way. God's timing is perfect. When that decree went out to every village, every hamlet, no doubt the majority of people thought, oh, that's it. We're done. We're toast. God was like not even close. I got a king with insomnia over here. I got another one building gallows. (laughs) And I'm going to work it all out in the end. And as he did then, he can do now. The same day the king gave all the Bible says that belonged to Haman, he gave it to Esther. And the king took off of the took the ring off I don't know if he went out there to the gallows and he took it off the dead finger of Haman I don't know brother Ethan what I do know is he took it off of the hand of the enemy and he put it on the hand of Mordecai he said now you've got the power now you've got the authority now you've got the favor brothers and sisters you trust in God you believe in God you refuse to give up there is coming a day when God's going to take the ring off of Beelzebub he's going to take the power and authority away from the enemy and he's going to give it to God's people and you will know in that moment his timing is perfect Bible says everyone now feared Mordecai and the Jews as they were now brought into the power by the plan of God. Queen Esther was so determined to root out every bit of evil against God's people. She had the ten sons of Haman hung as well. That's commitment. I'm rooting this mess out. Everything that God tried to, everything the devil tried to do, all that compromise, all that hatred, I'm rooting it all out. Take all of his boys and put them on the same gallows. Now God's people were on the offensive. They were no longer huddled in the corners. Esther and Mordecai were no longer having to live in disguise. They were no longer fearing for their lives. They were on the offensive. And the Bible says that they went on to defeat 75,000 members of the enemy. One orphan girl 
and her uncle who drew a line in the sand and said for such a time as this I'm going to live for God biblically not culturally for such a time as this I'm going to trust in the perfect timing of God I'll say this and then we're going to pray did you know to this day Jews celebrate the holiday Purim. And on Purim, they bake fruit filled, it's, it's fruit filled triangle pastries, kind of like a croissant filled with fruit. And those triangle pastries that they eat on Purim is supposed to symbolize Haman's ears. And to this day, when on Purim, they read the story of Esther when the name of Haman is mentioned even the little kids and everybody they boo boo to this day I want to tell somebody here right now if you will trust in the timing of God if you will trust in him there will be a legacy left for years to come that will reflect back on when my dad and my granddad, it didn't look good. It looked bleak. It looked discouraging. But because they trust God, we still celebrate the victory that God gave them 20 years ago. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I want to challenge someone here today. If you've been questioning the timing of God, if you've been wondering secretly and maybe even openly, God, what are you doing? What's going on? I don't understand it. I don't have the answers. God has sent this preacher to tell you today he knows what he's doing. He's in control. And his timing is perfect. And all that he's asking you to do is to do exactly what Mordecai and Esther did. They committed wholly and completely. They surrendered fully to God, to the plan of God. They sacrificed all of themselves to God. And in the end, the plan of God was made evident. And if you're here this morning and you would say, Pastor, I want God's plan and purpose fulfilled in my life. I don't want to derail God's plan by giving up too early. I don't want to walk out too early when God's still working. I don't want to throw my hands up and give up when God is not done. I want to put my trust in Him. I want to acknowledge my faith in Him. I want to publicly today acknowledge, God, I still believe you're in control and you still have all things in your power. If you'll make that commitment, if you will acknowledge that trust in God, step out from where you're at and make your way down to this altar and let God see your commitment. Let God see your trust in Him. Let God view your commitment in His timing. Come on, that's it. I've got questions. I don't understand. That's all right. Put your trust in God. Come on, that's it.